Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It was good to be with you. Can I give you my review? And Mazel Tov to your oh. brother and the whole family. Thank you very much. It was nice seeing you at a big wedding celebration. We are really hitting the social circuit, aren't we? <laughs> certainly are. <laughs> I don't know how hard you're hitting it, but yeah. Do my review of Operation Finale. Should I give you my review of the most recent adaptation of the Eichmann capture story in Argentina? Yes, sir. So awful. Such an awful movie. And you know why? I mean, there are a lot of reasons why it's a total waste of time as far as I'm concerned. But the thing that concerns me the most is they, and you've seen this a million times, Malcolm, especially today in you know 2018, it seems to be the tendency. They try to humanize Eichmann. They spend an hour, you know, basically, you know, showing how how normal a human being he was, so to speak, and how he interacts with his his, his Israeli captors. And I guess this is the trend. We saw the same thing. Remember the Munich movie that came out? Right. Excuse me, the Ante- not Munich, the Entebbe movie that came out. Inte- same thing, right? Same thing where they have to humanize and show the point of view, so to speak, of those who are, uh, you know, taking the hostages and creating terror throughout the entire world. But I guess you'd agree that this is the trend these days, right? Generally, we, we tend to treat the uh, perpetrators and try to find some uh, golden lining and, and to, um, in the process. It's not only humanizing them. We know they're humans, but it, it denies the, the beast in them and the horrific, the true horrific nature of uh, the, the evil that they represent. And, it, and it's pervasive. It's not something, you know, that they were nice to their dogs, you know, it's not an evidence that they weren't murderous and and uh, barbaric. No question about it. Um, the uh, the story, the actual spy thriller, and I saw this through the exhibit at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, of what the Israelis had to do every step of the way in order to make this a successful mission to bring him to Israel was simply remarkable. Unfortunately, it gets very, very little attention in the movie, that part of it, but you'd agree, am I right, that it's one of the greatest, you know, coordinated efforts probably in spy history? It was, well, the, the original films, the early films of it, I think, portray it more accurately. And the complexity of what uh, of, of the plans and the speed with which they had to do it. Remember, right. they didn't have a lot of time. It's not something they could plan for months. And yet we're able to pull off with uh, the flying in under night, not being detected, have a duplicate of the car. Uh, all of the little details make it all the more impressive. Passports to be prepared, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, on to some other things that are happening. Um, John McCain passed away, as we know. We heard this news <clears throat> right after Shabbos. Many people have asked me to ask you uh, to evaluate his record vis-a-vis Israel. Oh, he was a great friend of Israel. He had visited Israel numerous times. He was um, certainly somebody who was very involved in foreign affairs, saw the world in uh, real terms, and respected the Israeli IDF, had close ties with people there. Uh, I know that um, Mr. Netanyahu spoke to him as, uh, of him as a dear friend. He spoke to the Conference of Presidents, and I had the privilege of meeting him numerous times. Uh, so he was a, it's a great law school, and he was a great man. All right, some of the news of the day. Um, I was under the impression from what we discussed last week that uh, that not only would there be funding cut off to the Palestinians, but we may see an actual real change regarding UNRWA at the UN. Uh, what, what's the situation right now? 
Well, the, I think the U.S., according to reports, and they've been varying, so no, no certainty, but the um, press to try to change the definition of refugees, et cetera, it seems that we're not going to do it. We are going to probably withdraw uh, funding from um, uh, UNRWA, which would prove that the, the that the United States recognizes that the fight isn't one just over territory. It's about it's an existential fight. That what they're doing and with the existence of UNRWA is based on the assumption that they can destroy Israel. That the, um, the, the, the UNRWA itself was created to, to deal with Palestinian refugees. The United States gives every year, I think, $350 million towards their $1.2 billion budget. But we know that the United States uh, slashed that in half, and now we're talking about a, a total cut. And the question is how you transfer some of the services, the essential services. But the studies have shown, including the State Department, that the real number of refugees is about 30,000, though they talk of numbers up to 9 million, the PA does. I think UNRWA recognizes 5 million. They have 30,000 people working in the UNRWA infrastructure, spending uh, all of this money to service what is in any other place in the world would be this de minimis population of 30,000 and providing for their needs, but not their great-grandchildren. And the, the the I think it is a unique circumstance in the world where where they are included, you know, in this uh, that every generation is included in the ongoing uh, numbers. But I think that the cuts will go beyond that. That we'll see the PA cut off uh, virtually uh, and the completely. And, the, and as they said, people in the administration said, you know, we, we get nothing in return for it. Doesn't advance any American interest. That the um, uh, and that uh, I saw Nikki Haley said in, in, in remarks this week that the right of return to Israel should be taken off the table and that UNRWA uh, sh um, will have to be reformed before the United States can look back at it and, and start dealing accurately with the number of, uh, of refugees. But more than that, saying that he, the PA works against the United States, uh, undermines efforts at peace, both in Gaza and in uh, and, and overall Middle East peace. And at the same time, they have their handout taking our money. So I think this, and you have the Taylor Force Act, you have other things that have been also will, will impact um, the, this funding. And Abbas doesn't care about what happens to his people. Abbas cares about what happens to him. And as long as he can protect his kleptocracy, remain in power, uh, it seems that uh, he, he doesn't even make the slightest gesture to try and ameliorate the, these criticisms. So the cut of the $200 million in Palestinian aid is uh, is not UNRWA-related, or it is UNRWA-related? No, it's beyond UNRWA. That's beyond it. So mm -hmm. so Abbas is losing a lot of money this week. I mean, if, you, if you're saying his most important interest is self-interest, he's losing a big, big uh, chunk of change. Yes, and the, the difference now is that there's nobody to make it up. He used to be able to turn right. to the Saudis, to the others. The only ones who are putting money, Qatar, which is doing it in coordination with Israel for relief work in, in uh, Gaza. Jordan doesn't do any of that? They don't Jordan get... does not, but they have a big refugee population in their own borders. And the, the interesting enough that you raised Jordan, because Jordan announced that they're going to hold a fundraiser for UNRWA in this coming week, I think. And the um, Well, uh, I guess I would be on condition that, that they wouldn't cut any aid, that they wouldn't cut any funding, rather. 
right? Would that be, or, or would that be only if they would go ahead and, and cut the funding? That is just to compensate for right. the cut funding. To make Although, up, to make up you know, for funding. Jordan itself is, right. is a recipient of a lot of aid from us, and uh, the money and that money does go to, to help sustain the refugee quote refugee population in, right. in Jordan, which is today maybe two thirds of the population because they are all Palestinians. Right. And so this is a, a raising Jordan is a very complicated issue in this regard. Right. Um, the U.S. peace plan that we've been hearing about now for months, um, and it seems that every time there is some type of significant date, in this case the U.N. meeting, I guess, at the end of September, uh, there's an announcement that we can expect this peace plan to be revealed you know, momentarily, so to speak. Uh, do you think that in reality this will be released in the next couple of weeks? Well, from all the comments that have been made, obviously I'm not part of the, the decision-making process, but I don't believe, and it's been pretty clearly stated, that it will not be at the General Assembly. And if the elections are called right after Sukkot by the Prime Minister or shortly thereafter, I believe it will be put on hold until the elections because it's going to be very hard to discuss and negotiate a deal if you're under the gun of a, a, a pending election. Right. So my sense is that uh, that will not be forthcoming soon. No, nothing specifically happened this week to indicate that we're heading toward a new election, right? Well, you have another, you have further talk of indictments against the members of the prime minister's family. Right. Um, these are additional pressures that are coming to bear. But, uh, well, nothing would happen now because once the Knesset is out of session, uh, I don't think he will even call elections. He has to wait till they or he will wait till they reconvene in October. And the theory is the more pressure from the indictments, the more likely an early election, right? That's the theory. That would be a theory. On the <laughs> other hand, there are others say that, you know, they double down right. in the face of an election. Right. That's interesting. I uh, I would think it's that way, frankly, but I've been reading a lot about the about the first theory, that that's the way it would go. Um, so, so this plan is not going to be on the table or in discussion or released to the public before this U.N. session at the end of September. Well, I won't say it won't be in discussion. I'm sure that the people involved will have discussions, but I don't think that it will be revealed, and they've done a terrific job in keeping it, the content really confidential and, and secret beyond, just in the hands of a few people, which I think is the way a deal like this has to be handled. And it's rare in American, Israeli, and other politics that, that uh, things remain secret. Right. But so far it has, and uh, I think that while there will be discussions, and you know the Palestinians are talking about bringing up issues against Israel, uh, as they are, you know, they're, in, um, they, they're going to the court, in the ICC, against Israel now. They head the G77 group, which is the group of 77, supposedly not aligned. It's an economic development group in theory, but in fact, they could politicize it. And here you have a non-state, uh, non-member, officially member of the UN, leading the G77. And I'm sure they're going to try and take advantage of that and exploit it to uh, do stuff at the um, at the upcoming General Assembly session. And, uh, of course, the, the UNRWA and the, few, the new Council on Human Rights and the many other things that are going on, which will, I think, all be on the agenda at the time. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web, NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Yeah, it's Labor Day weekend. Nonetheless, we've got the weekly update. Malcolm Honline is with us, Executive Vice Chairman 
Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. The headline says, New Images Show Iranian Surface-to-Surface Missile Facility in Syria. Tell me about this revelation. Uh, this is very significant because this is a um, uh, surface-to-surface air missiles uh, production facilities, as you said, and it's uh, near the, it's uh, in the northwestern sector sector of uh, Syria. The building itself looks like the Parchin facility, which people will remember because it was part of the Iranian nuclear uh, facility. But it, and it's linked, which is and Parchin was used also for manufacture of ballistic missiles. Um, this is in an area called Wadi Jahannam, and it's um, it's it's right adjacent to a Russian S-400 anti-aircraft installation. So remember, this is the very advanced anti-aircraft system, air defense system that Russia installed in Syria, and therefore it limits Israel or someone else's ability uh, to strike it without endangering the. Uh, without hitting uh, Russian soldiers or the Russian uh, installation, uh, as opposed to the facility which Israel hit nearby in Maysop, you remember, the missile production facility in a place where um, chemical weapons were produced, also missiles, and that leading sci- uh, Syrian scientist on, on, in these areas was, uh, was killed. And the defense minister, Khatami the, uh, of Iran, uh, not only pledge to rebuild this, but to rebuild all of the Iranian infrastructure, and supposedly they signed some sort of a, a deal between them. But there's, this is going to be a very busy weekend and stuff to watch, because this facility obviously is going to be in the target. But uh, more than that, you also have the Russians holding major drills in the Mediterranean off the coast of Syria. You have the Egyptians in the United States holding joint war games. Uh, and I think the the um, there's a, a lot of people. Somebody described it as a perfect storm. I don't think that that is accurate, or that, that we will see uh, something explode. But we also have uh, within Syria the growing tension over Idlib and whether the Tur- talks with the Turks. Maybe they'll make a deal uh, of some kind um, to to and will enable them to continue to work against the Kurds. And maybe they'll pull out of the Idlib because the uh, Syrians, together with their allies, are mounting a major assault. There are about 10,000 uh, of the opposition forces uh, uh, still there. So um, it, it is. there is a lot going on. That, the the that Syrian facility will be a target for whom? Israel. Oh, that's what I was thinking. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I can't say that they ever did a thing like this because they haven't told us that they have. But... Well, is this, are these images from Israeli intelligence? Where did these images come from, the discovery of this plant? The uh, image that uh, satellites, but Israel released the information. Oh, so they may have known about this for, for weeks or months at this point. No, actually, I think that the, 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 the uh, resurgence of construction on the site was more recent than that. Um, and by the way, even the UN has raised fears about the introduction of chemical weapons, and if these facilities are being used also for chemical weapons production, that will and and they maybe they they want to use it in the, the Idlib battle as they've used it elsewhere, and, and as long as that very little price for the violation of their commitments and for this uh, these outrageous war crimes, there's no reason not to believe they won't use them again. And as long as those words keep being bandied about, it gives Israel more of a of of, of uh, world support to go and eliminate it. 
the more people- everybody wants to see Israel do the dirty work, but nobody wants to back them when they do it. Right. Yeah, I got that. And and when you mentioned the Egyptian U.S. drills, war games, you called them. What's that about? Um, well, the U.S. Egyptian is um, uh, they haven't had them for a while between the two, but this is is very important. By the way, also Iranian naval drills in the Persian Gulf. Hmm. using missile fire and other things. They, they've kept it pretty low-key, but it's the first time in three years that they've had these kind of exercises with hundreds of those uh, fast boats and other things involved. So the the Russian uh, drill is perhaps a statement. It's a show of force. Um, as you know, there are a lot of things going on inside, and, and the, some of the statements from the administration uh, about uh, this, the developments in, in Syria and where the United States stands and, and assuring that they're not going to pull out until Iran is out, which we hope will be the case. Um, so there, there's increasing pressure from all sides. There's going to be a, a meeting between Erdogan, uh, Rouhani of Iran, and uh, Putin in next week, which will be a very important meeting, I believe, uh, and dealing with the future of the region, but it will also deal with the sanctions issues. You know, Iran, uh, uh, Turkey is feeling the sanctions bite there. Currency continues to drop precipitously. There is more and more uh, unrest amongst some of the population, although Erdogan has a strong base of support, as opposed to what I think is happening in Iran. And now this is conjecture on my part, but based upon reading what what has been happening there. Number one, their oil exports are dropping much faster than anyone had predicted. The crude shipments, I think, dropped to 1,500, 1.5 million barrels a day in September from 2.3 million in June, and expect to go down to 800,000 barrels. In exports to Europe and India are more than cut in half, and to China, 25%. A lot of this has to do that they can't get tankers, uh, don't want to ship this stuff. This and, is, and all this uh, means is further, bad as And this the, is in advance of the November 4th sanctions on oil and, and oil production in Iran. In addition, Rouhani appeared before the Majlis, the parliament, and was questioned harshly. And they said that they were unsatisfied with the answers, and, so, and it may be referred to the judiciary. Uh, quite a number of the ministers have been dismissed by the Iranian parliament. The, on, uh, on, during this week, the Minister of Economic Affairs and Finance, Karbassian, um, was, uh, um, uh, was removed, voted they removed him from office. And earlier, they had the Minister of Labor and the Minister, the head of the Central Bank, and other people have been replaced. And I think Khamenei is going to target Rouhani. Uh, and they're saying, look, it's not the sanctions from America that's doing this. It's the corruption inside Iran. And we heard that echoed in some of the comments in the in the modulus in the parliament in Iran, which to me looks like somebody, uh, you know, it's a setup against, uh, and well-deserved perhaps, against Rouhani. But the um, uh, it looks to me like that there's uh, important political maneuverings going on that we should be focusing on also. You know how the uh, major, uh, like Google and others, have uh, targeted accounts linked to Iran, which they have uh, traced to Iran. I think 39 video channels just on YouTube and 13 accounts on Google uh, networking. They're found to be Iranian state broadcasting uh, linked uh, sites to spread disinformation. 
and the and they're linked to the Iran Republic of Iran Broadcasting, which has been under U.S. sanctions since uh, 2013. A huge number of pages from Twitter, Facebook, all of these things, which shows that they have a, a big political influence operation that they are trying to, you know, again undermine and and uh, influence. And of course, Israel is a major target of a lot of that uh, propaganda. What happens? All those social media sites alert the American authorities when something like that occurs, when when something becomes obvious to them. Or people, uh, well, first of all, the U.S. officials monitor it, but also others who come across uh, these sites. But the problem is that there are probably thousands of them. So mm-hmm. even if we terminate some, they're always going to be more and more um, that they uh, bring up. But it takes time, and as long as we keep closing them down and that they have to renew their, direct their efforts just at, at renewing these things, then um, it keeps them from being able to spread all their hatred. And, on the oil- and, and the fact that they're, they're now more alert to it, I think, will be helpful. And on the oil situation you described in Iran, so the point, I mean, one of the points basically is that uh, as bad as the economy has been there, now now it's even worse. But it seems when they need any, any money for military exercise or for facilities like this in Syria, they're able to find the money. Uh, I'm not sure that's true anymore. In theory, you're right. But uh, it, it doesn't take much to be able to, you know, send some money to and, and missiles to... Um, Gaza, let's say, mm. but they've cut back, and we see that they've cut back in uh, um, Lebanon with Hezbollah as well, and this is, uh, uh, I think, a reflection in that they don't have the unlimited funds for the adventurism that they normally engage in. This is a priority. The people of Iran pay the price for it because their needs are not being met because the money is being diverted to to these uh, to these activities. Uh, but they do not have the kind of largesse that they had before. But remember, we gave them $150 billion, and uh, that cash lasts a long time if it's diverted for this purpose. Um, And and the the people of Iran, I I guess because of the the nature of the government and how it operates, even if they wanted to protest more, demonstrate more, work toward a revolution, because I don't know how they're surviving in in an economy like this, uh, they're simply, I assume, not able to at this point. I, I don't understand it either. The, the problem with the water, the fact that uh, so much of the country is under drought and, and it's not getting clean water, they're not um, exporting, which means that the jobs are being lost at a, a ever-increasing rate. Unemployment is very high. And I think what I reported about what's going on in the Majlis is a reflection that they're trying to divert attention and that Rouhani could well be the uh, carbon in all of this. You know, they attacked Zarif. They, even the Khamenei, the supreme leader, attacked Zarif and said it was a mistake to let him negotiate the deal. So the, um, uh, clearly there's a lot of rising tension within the system, and I think if the United States has to take advantage of that, and if only the Europeans would be going along along with it, it would be uh, it's, it's a time when you could make or help bring about change in Iran, whether the regime change or policy change, whatever, but certainly maybe a change in behavior. All right, we got to talk about the North and the South. Uh, is is there a new IDF chief of staff uh, to, to be named soon, or maybe you already you know know who's been chosen behind the scenes? Uh, I do not know. I know some of the speculation, but uh, uh, I, I don't know. There is going to be a new uh, chief of staff. I understand there are some differences of views about it, about who will get it, but uh, there will be a new one soon, and uh, they will 
they'll be facing whoever it is will face uh, serious challenges. I think we have to credit uh, General Eisenkot for having done a, a really good job, and uh, he's earned the respect both of his uh, people, American officials, and others. And does that does a new IDF chief of staff change policy or affect change in policy in? in areas like the North and South, or essentially the Prime Minister of Israel is still making these decisions? No, I think the IDF and the IDF uh, brass, it's not just the Chief of Staff, although he does have significant influence, and he can change the direction. You know, they emphasize different things, they um, they have different views or assessments, and, um, you know, we have a new approach now that Israel is building up special units on missiles based on missile technology, but missiles that can hit anywhere in the Middle East within 10 meters of the site, wow. uh, which is nothing, and, um, and will be reflected in future uh, warfare. God willing, won't have to be used, but it is a major shift in terms of the approach and, and the thinking, and, and they constantly have to reevaluate because you have to take into account the capacities and capabilities of the opponents that they face and what are likely to be the, the kind of conflicts that, that they will face. And the United States has been in close consultation with Israel about it, about to see what the needs are, what equipment, and have been generous in, in the response to it, just as, I don't know if you saw that the Israeli finance minister, Kahlon, met with the Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, and they set up a joint action team on the enforcement of economic sanctions against Iran, and they see it as a threat to the free world and to Israel. Uh, but uh, this will be an important effort to to um, help tighten the sanctions by them working together. Interesting. All right, back to the north and south. And the north side, I guess this, uh, this new uh, revelation about the missile facility in Syria obviously concerns Israel, to say the least. Anything else we should know in terms of what's happening on the Israeli-Syrian border? The, well, the, I think that the uh, the question for Israel is, of course, keeping Iranian forces and others away, uh, making sure that they don't surreptitiously bring in more advanced equipment. Uh, it's, a, it's a major challenge when you have tens of thousands of these Iranian militia imported from uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, elsewhere, to, to fight there, and, and many of them putting on Syrian army uniforms to, to uh, be able to infiltrate the army units and therefore be given access closer than what Iranian or uh, Iranian-backed forces uh, would be given to the Israeli border. So it's a, it is a major challenge, and there's always attempts that, um, thank God, Israel has been very effective in uh, trying to address. But it's um, there, there was no major event over the last week right. that um, indicates it. And I guess the only major event down south is the debate whether there's still a ceasefire or not, because uh, I was under the impression that, in fact, there was one that's you know in effect, but the, the enemy is constantly stating that, uh, you know, as far as they're concerned, uh, they're not quite sure that this ceasefire or whatever quiet uh, there is now in, in the south is going to remain. Uh, is it, in fact, that tenuous? Well, first of all, the agreement hasn't been reached, and the um, and it's been put a little bit on hold. Uh, and Abbas is obviously not cooperating and not helping it. The Egyptians have invested a lot of time. Uh, Abbas talks about keeping the ground aflame. That doesn't help when you're trying to calm things down. 
The, um, <laughs> so uh, while there is some sort of, uh, I would say, the calm, which they constantly refer to, uh, the agreement itself is not. And, and the question is, will it be a long-term agreement? Will it involve return of, of uh, the prisoners and all that, which they say is a separate track? And that right now they're just dealing with the uh, ending the violence, and which is important, and especially for the people living in the South who had a really terrible summer, and people should remember them, and we should support them. Um, but, you know, first of all, with, with, uh, the, um, with Hamas, you know what you're dealing with. So long-term agreements I don't think have much meaning. I do think that they, they are hurting. Israel did a very effective job in the bombings uh, over the summer. And they, the people of, of Gaza are hurting very much and are pressing their government because they know that they are, and they're continuing, by the way, in the practices, trying to smuggle in cement for their things, trying to still build tunnels and do other uh, of the activities in which they're engaged. So it's not that Hamas has reformed or Hamas has become a peaceful ally or anything else. I think it's the pressure, the success of the attacks, and that they need time, breathing time and time to try and rebuild. The talk is about how to make investments without benefiting Hamas, how you build up the infrastructure and, and the needs to, uh, to meet the needs of the people who get water just a couple hours a day and electricity only a couple hours a day, which is uh, a prescription for continued violence. Speaking of affecting calm, did you see the statement by the Jordanian uh, minister that if, he had, if they had the capability, they would bomb Haifa? Yeah, he said, and he said no, one day we will have the, uh, that they will develop the military capacity, that they will be able to bomb Haifa. You know, this is a lot of this is done for domestic consumption. I'm not excusing it, and I, I don't like it when others use that line. But, you know, they, they, uh, he's under a lot of pressure domestically, the king, and sometimes these statements uh, by others are just a play to the people. Don't forget he has the majority of Palestinian population. A lot of unrest there, and Israel gives him gives them a lot of rope um, and a lot of leeway because of the recognizing the situation. But they all know very well that they're only there today because of Israel. You think Nikki Haley is going to run for president in twenty twenty four? Twenty twenty four? Yeah. I don't know. I think she's done an amazing job at. Uh, that's too long away. Isn't it amazing every time she opens her mouth how incredibly she speaks about Israel and the United States, I should add? Well, she's following a policy set by the administration, but she articulates it very strongly and very effectively. And I think um, it's certainly, uh, she's a heroine in the Jewish community and a lot of other uh, sectors. And whether she's setting herself up for a run, you know, there's a lot of speculation about it, but it's not good. When you have a sitting president and a president who might run for re-election, to feel that you have somebody working for you who's already gunning for your job. Right. Uh, finally, Jeremy Corbyn saw the article that the Dory Gold wrote about him and the resurgence of European anti-Semitism. Um, are there those in in Great Britain who are taking strong stands against them, aside from the uh, Jewish groups and newspapers that decided last week that are coming out publicly uh, with statements about him? First, I was hopeful by the way you formulated. You said finally Corbyn. I thought maybe that was the end, but obviously <laughs> that is not the case, and uh, quite the opposite. He is thriving over these the criticisms, and every day we find new revelations about about him. Not only that he laid the wreath at the um, at the graves of the Munich massacre people, but 
so many other things, so many statements, anti-Israel, visiting the West Bank, going to, to meet with uh, terrorists. The, the record is so overwhelming. And what you are asking is exactly the right question. Where are the voices in labor? Tony Blair, all of the other former officials, where, where's the rebellion? You heard from a few courageous people some of the sentiment against him. But it's nowhere near what, what it should be. And frankly, I hope that all of us who can see so clearly what is wrong in England, and in fact, I'm meeting with the leaders of the British Jewish community in a couple of days. They're coming here to talk about this and uh, and other things, and we, we but we follow it very closely because I believe that there are lessons for us in this, and it's a warning thing. And if we don't take this, watch it there, because sometimes distance gives you clarity. But I'm it's assuming. happening here. And the latest polls show it, that we, we see very disturbing trends in different parts of the political spectrum vis-a-vis Israel and anti-Semitism. The fact that you have candidates, candidates who can espouse in America anti-Semitic sentiment, and they're not knocked off because of it. They're not elected, perhaps, because of it, but they're not defeated because of it. And I think, you know, we should keep the pressure on, on British officials and whatever role we can play in support of, our, of the communities there, which have become more outspoken, all of them editorialized, there were some demonstrations. But, you know, the community's not that big. And, and you saw that the Palestinians uh, said that, that uh, Corbyn, that you should continue, don't succumb to the pressures, don't change your definition of, uh, of Zionism, et cetera. And he said that, that um, something to the effect that no Brit could be a, a Zionist, uh, trying to, to divide the people and, and these old canards that, that he continues to come up with. And it's not impossible that he could be leading a government in, in Britain. So it's, it's very significant on the two levels. One is what's happening in Britain itself and, and what is being done to counter him. And second... What are the lessons we learned? Because Britain is often the bellwethers. You remember 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I said that Britain is the model on what will BDS will be in America. Right. Remember, top down, not yeah. bottom up, yeah. which is what's happened, and it's continuing to happen, although we'll see what, what happens when the campuses really uh, open up in the next uh, week or two and the next days right. and see how strong the BDS effort will be. We've already seen some manifestations of it. But I think in terms of the body politic, we have to look at what's happening in Europe overall, in the loss of the center, the extremism, the polarization, and too many signs of that here. And we have to start early. We should not have candidates who make it past the first day if they are anti-Semites and have a history. So communities, everybody has to be aware and, and expose uh, them to the, to the light of day. I think the American people reject it extremists and, and bigots and racist anti-Semites, uh, but they have to be educated about it and they have to be identified and not when they're in a primary or win a primary and then don't face any opposition in a general election are going to be shoo-ins to go into Congress in the new session, in the new uh, Congress. All right, two quick things. Number one, uh, I hope everyone in the audience heard what I just heard, Malcolm Holmline telling us that what's happening in Britain is happening here as well. Keep that in mind. Number two, I assume that that's going to be your message, your, the, the bulk of your message uh, to the uh, British Jewish leadership you meet with this week is, is to put pressure on people like Tony Blair and others. They've got to, they've got to really mobilize and, 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 uh, and do what you described if they're going to make any progress on this at all. Well, I think the British leadership have been doing it. I, I, I think uh, I'm not 
saying that we will tell them what to do. We will talk about what we can do together, if there are ways that we can help them, but more importantly for us to understand fully the phenomenon, how widespread, what, and again, because I believe we learn lessons from it, but also there are instances in which we can be of assistance to them. Uh, And I think that uh, some of the leadership really has been bold and outspoken um, on it. The problem is that European Jewry, generally, doesn't speak out they they don't confront mostly because their numbers are smaller and there isn't the traditions of lobbying that we have in the United States. It's really right. a unique system here, which is why people should be taking advantage of it by registering, by voting, by making their voices heard. We have elections coming up, and municipal elections, and you have the primaries coming up now, which are important. Uh, there are a lot of elections where people's voices should be heard, and the um, uh, so. I think that we have a lot to learn from from what's going on there and the warning signs that we have to communicate as well to our people. No question about it. All right. Uh, We will speak, Bezrat Hashem, next Friday. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Have a good Shabbos. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday mornings for the weekly update here on JM in the AM.